Hello and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone and with me is my co-host Rob Lamorgis. Hello everybody! Last week we examined two movies that revolved around young men trying to grow up amidst the chaos of crime-ridden neighborhoods. This week we're going to switch gears and we're going to look at three films that tell more pulp and noir inspired stories. Uh, We begin with 1992's tale of an undercover cop in over his head. This is Deep Cover. The great thing about life on the street is you know how it's going to be. It's always the same. It's always getting worse. Hasta la vista! On these streets, one color rules. Green. It's not 10 kilos we want, we want 20. Listen, you're taking a lot away for a guy we hardly know, John. Where are you moving this stuff? He's gonna get you busted. No, I won't. On these streets, nothing's what it seems to be. Is that our bust? Yeah. Well, who is he? Listen, John here got busted, but he kept his mouth shut. On these streets, he'd be the perfect criminal if he wasn't the perfect cop. Did you ever take a look at your psychological profile? You score almost exactly like a criminal. I'm looking for somebody who will go under and stay under. What does he have to do? Buy drugs, sell drugs, set up the people that I don't want to bust. Because there's only one rule in this game, John. Don't blow your cover. Do what you want to, but don't try to sit down while I get down. Not, not there's a lot of money to be made out there, babe. The more we have, the more we can move. Business is improving. From almost nothing to almost something. Oh, are you an ambitious boy? You're gonna kill us. You're not gonna kill anybody. We're too valuable to him. There's no such thing as an American anymore. No blacks, no whites, no nothing. It's just rich people and poor people. Larry Fishburne. Don't blow your cover. Deep cover. Written by Michael Tolkien and Henry Beam and directed by Bill Duke. Deep cover stars Lawrence Fishburne, Jeff Goldblum, Charles Martin Smith, Victoria Dillard, and Clarence Williams III. It tells the story of police officer Russell Stevens Jr., who was recruited by the DEA for a long-term undercover operation. He poses as a drug dealer in Los Angeles and begins to work his way up the cocaine cartel's hierarchy. But as he does, he finds that the higher he goes, the more complicated things become. And Rob, Deep Cover is a movie that I remember when it came out, but I didn't actually see. And then for a while, it seemed to, to sort of fade from the collective consciousness, but in recent years has undergone something of a rediscovery. Uh, the, uh, they put out a Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection not all that long ago, and frankly, justifiably so, because this movie is terrific. Yeah, I saw it back in the day and really liked it. It's been a while since I've seen it, and it is uh, fantastic on, on every level. At top to bottom, every department in this movie, it's it's amazing. Uh, from Bill Duke's direction, oh, uh, yeah. the screenplay, the acting. But, I mean, the production design, the uh, cinematography. Cinematography. The colors of this movie are vibrant and alive. Oh, oh yeah. A- absolutely. Incredible. 
And, uh, you know, you are going to see a lot of atmosphere in the air, which is something I feel that has gone out of... And I, when I say this, I mean the literal atmosphere, the term that they use for throwing dust <laughs> yeah. up in, in on set so that as the light comes through, it's catching it. Uh, this has fallen way out of favor uh, these days, and I, I, I don't know if there's any environmental impact on the actors or something <laughs> that they no longer do it. But it was very much an 80s thing. Oh, yeah. 80s film noirs did this a lot. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, Stuff like To and Live and Die movie, in L.A. and Manhunter. Somebody you know, to Watch Over Me. The, which The uh, collective movie works I, of Michael yeah. Mann. You know, it, it, <laughs> exactly. absolutely. Um, Lawrence Fishburne is, gives an incredible performance uh, as the lead in this movie. He is dynamic and charismatic uh i mean he is a movie star in this movie and it is a movie star role yes i love lawrence fishburne all the time but it's it's been funny uh seeing him back to back in these films or you know alma you know week to week in these films sure uh you know because normally i don't necessarily watch role after role of his uh, in a row. And, you know, I, I'm going to put him in my pantheon of phone book actors. Uh, yeah. uh, someone who I would, if you filmed him watching, uh, if you filmed him reading the phone book, I would be there. Uh, yeah. There are, there are just is, certain people like that. He is terrific in yeah. this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's, it's there's, uh, there's another great performance. There's actually a couple of great performances in the movie. Oh, for sure. Uh, the other one comes from Jeff Goldblum. As the cartel lawyer who becomes Fishburne's partner in crime, and he's also great in in a it's like the it's like the dark version of Jeff Goldblum's character from from Jurassic Park. It's like the it's, yes. it's the evil version of Ian Malcolm in a way, uh, and he's great. Um, yeah. and also, he's the I, evil version of Russell Stevens in this movie. Uh, yes. but we'll get into that in a little bit. Yes, I was going to also mention Charles Martin Smith. As Russell's handler, uh, kind of playing against type because it's, first of all, he's the most unlikable character in the film. And it's the yes. only movie I've ever seen Charles Martin Smith in where I didn't like him. Like, he's he's like the, the evil version of his character from The Untouchables. Yeah, he is just, uh, and we'll get into this as well, he is the racist face of the system. And oh yeah. man, is he... Uh, in every aspect, the uncaring uh, part of the system, and you will despise him in this movie. Um, oh, yeah. Also, you get a a wonderful performance from Clarence Williams III as Taft, mm -hmm. a police officer in this movie as well. And it's, um you know, oftentimes some of my favorite Clarence Williams III roles are ones where he goes to 11. And he, because... Yeah. Like you know, no one can quite do bombastic like this man, and he's he's wonderful. But this he's is got a, those eyes, man. Yeah, but this is a much more uh, subdued role than sometimes he is typecast in. Uh, but he's great, and I chalk a lot of this up. A, they're all great actors anyway. But this is why this is the ceiling for why you want to get a great actor turned director. Yeah. With yeah. Bill Duke, and because when it works, they they do tend to get uh, whether they're getting out of the way of certain actors or helping them in ways that make sense. They really can pull performances out in a way that sometimes directors who've come up in other areas, uh, it's just harder for them to do. Yeah, yeah. I, I've uh, Bill Duke directs the hell out of this movie, and uh, you know, honestly, I I I'm 
he is he is he does such a great job here. I've been on a big Bill Duke kick because we had him show up, uh, you know, last week in Menace to Society, and with with the new Predator movie Prey out, I I did take a, a little bit of time to watch the original Predator, and mm-hmm. and there's a movie where he's great, and because everybody's great in that whole movie because it's basically perfect, uh, and yeah, just Bill Duke is one of those he's he's a treasure man, not a Absolutely. treasure man, but like he's a treasure <laughs> comma yes. man. You know, like, fantastic. So one thing, uh, I did mention Bill Duke as a, uh, you know, actor, who therefore can get great performances as a director. But um, the visual style in this movie is also very unique. Um, I I talked a little bit about some of the film noir atmosphere and things, but uh, this movie, even the beginning, where you start with that still frame, uh, Mm -hmm. and it's like a stutter, so you're missing frames. So it's almost... uh, it's, it's just like a succession of freeze frames that are almost operating as a flip book uh, to, to get the motion. And it's just a, a, you know, a guy smoking a Coke in his glass pipe as the credits roll. And there's someone in the background and you're changing focal points from the silhouetted man who's smoking to the man in the background. And it's just uh, a wonderful little piece of atmosphere to begin this thing, uh, centering you exactly on it. This is about the drug trade, obviously. You're just getting the mm-hmm. visual up front because after that opening credits, you then jump into what the 1972 in Cleveland at Christmas time, where yes. you get the view. And I want to talk about that scene. Oh yeah, and then you're you're in the with the cop side of things for a while. So it's a it's a good way, and I'm I'm sure that uh, you know Tolkien and uh, and and Henry uh, in the screenplay. It's, it's a good way to orient the audience with where you're going before knowing that you have some other business you have to get through before you can uh, get get into it. Absolutely. So, yeah, like uh, Menace to Society, we have a scene, you know, at the, at the beginning of the movie, very similar to Menace to Society, where you, you see the, the young the protagonist is a young boy in his relationship with his father. His father, in both cases, is a junkie and a criminal um, in in and and. You know, here you see the father, you know, smoke a dope in, in front of his kid and tell him, oh, don't do this. Uh, before he then goes in to try and commit an armed robbery, which he then dies. He literally, uh, you know, dies in front of his son. And and it's interesting because the effect that it had on Russell in this movie is, is quite different than the one on Kane in Menace to Society. Uh, it sends him in a, diff- a completely different direction. Uh, to becoming a cop so he can avoid his father's fate. And it's mentioned several times, he doesn't even drink. Like, he, he avoids uh, substances altogether. And it's so it's interesting that you sort of have those two very divergent characters from what is a, a same, similar starting place. Absolutely. And, uh, I, you know, look, this is probably just because we've watched it recently. Uh, while it definitely has those parallels to Menace to Society, in Menace, it feels like it's set up and then the character kind of never reflects on it mm-hmm. here. Russell is reflecting on it all throughout. Absolutely. I mean, it is, it is consciously on his mind. And in that way, it, 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 you know, it gives you the sense of that character who is trying to overcome the past. Yeah. Uh, and, and in that way, it reminded me quite a bit of Arthur King Arthur in Excalibur. Oh, for a second, uh, I thought this... it was the Dudley Moore Arthur. Oh yes. You know, yes, when you get lost rocks, between actually, the moon the and New York one. city. Yeah, uh, yeah. But no, no, that makes perfect sense. Yes, it absolutely does relate. But in this movie, it has a much different answer as to whether or not one can escape your past. But I love the, the things that they pile on in addition to that opening scene in Cleveland. Yeah. 
is uh, when, uh, what, uh, Gerald Carver, who is uh, the total dick. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, uh, Charles Martin Smith's uh, character, who's the DEA guy. And he is, uh, you know, holding cop auditions for Undercover. And he, he uses a racist question to get under. Uh, he's only interviewing uh, black uniformed police officers. Yeah. Uh, black men. And he uses a racist question to get under their skin. Except Russell, uh, when he brings him in, it doesn't get under him skin. Right. His skin. Uh, Russell kind of gives it back to him, which is why then uh, he's chosen. Because he knows that he can kind of, uh, you know, keep character or whatever. Or he's just a sadist. I have no clue. But uh, he does talk about his psych eval, which I think also plays into the father and your family history of it all, where he says that he scores like a criminal on mm-hmm. every all of these mental psych eval uh, scores. And that he said in undercover work, all of your faults will become virtues. Yes. And so there's this idea that his true self un- that he's covering up might be his dad and his history yes and that he's just been holding it together and now he's going to be thrown into a world where keeping the lid on the pot is going to be a whole lot harder yeah it reminded me a lot of a scene that would would come uh more than a decade later in martin scorsese's the departed when when leonardo dicaprio is meeting with martin sheen's captain for the first time as well as mark Wahlberg for the first time and you know basically looking at his and saying you know, in in five years, you could be anything you wanted, but you're not going to be a cop. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's it, again, this feels like it's 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 very similar, and maybe maybe a more again a more racially charged one version of that scene, because in in The Departed, everybody everybody the three characters in that room are all white, and it is a very different dynamic than between Charles Martin Smith and Lawrence Fishburne here in Deep Cover. Absolutely, and. We've talked about this film as a film noir, uh, and it, it is. Uh, that is the genre. Absolutely. But what is what is interesting is, um, in looking at it as coming out of, or being in, in the wake of, New Jack City and Boys in the Hood. And uh, those both had very clear sociopolitical commentary, but they were centered on, you know, uh, various versions of what was going on in neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. This is not about neighborhoods. Right. Uh, and actually, none of the three films today Absolutely. are about neighborhoods. But this one, uh, in the beginning, watching it, I was wondering, oh, is does this is this just a film noir? And it has, you know, characters who have uh, some racial animosity with each other mm-hmm. and it's showing racism. But is that it? And and the answer I was uh, happy to see because I hadn't watched this in a while is no. It's when... Um, Russell is being given the breakdown of who he's going after. Yeah. You get Felix Barbosa, who's the mid-level supplier of the right. cocaine. You get he gets it from the importer Anton Gallegos, and then his uncle Hector Guzman is a Latin politician who helps get the drugs into the United States, and he is specifically told, Russell is specifically told by Carver to leave Guzman out of it. Leave the politician out of it. Mm-hmm. So he's at the beginning, he's told, don't go to the head of the snake. Right. Uh, as far as the, the organization goes. And so as you go throughout this movie, um, I, I, it, it, I took it as this movie is the film noir about Nino and Furious's speech. Yeah. Who brings the drugs into the country and why? Yeah, we don't own the boats. Yeah. And this is a movie that shows how the system works and why that stuff comes in. 
and who is considered expendable by the system. Absolutely. In that process. And it's coming out, you know, this is in, in, it came out in 92. So it's coming out, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, that era where we learned a lot about the CIA's involvement with drug trafficking and the U.S.'s relationship with Manuel Noriega and uh, the Iran-Contra affair. All that stuff is kind of in the zeitgeist at that moment in the early 90s. And, you know, they even mentioned that Guzman, the Latin American politician, plays golf with the president. It's funny because... You only see Guzman in photographs, I believe, until the climax until the of the movie. Yeah. He, he's like the political uh, specter haunting everything. That the, the guy, not only can you not touch, you can't even get near him. Yeah. Or Russell can't. Or I guess I should say at that point, John can't, which is his, uh, yes. Russell's undercover identity. Uh, to illustrate what a, what a dick uh, Charles Martin Smith's character is, there's a point when Fishburne, you know, having had some success in, in integrating himself into sort of the drug uh, cartel, you know, he goes to him needing more money for the operation. And Charles Martin Smith tells him, well, that isn't the budget. And Russell asks, well, how's he going to get the money that he needs to, 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 to pay for the drugs that he's bought? Charles Martin says, well, you're a drug dealer. Deal drugs. Like, there's no thought given to the people that the, these things are affecting on the street. It's just, well, hey, this is what you got to do. Yes, and that cavalier attitude toward the people that you are supposedly doing all of this undercover work for uh, you know, pervades Carver and all of the higher level government people that you see. Carver is mostly the face of it, but you do get some scenes with Carver and other feds mm-hmm. later in this film. And it really is uh, kind of everyone's a pawn in their political game. Yeah. And really uh, what they want to do is ingratiate themselves politically with whomever so that whenever this this job ends or goes awry, they have their golden parachute to land on. Uh, toward the end of the film, uh, Carver is talking about his cushy Washington, D.C. job that he's going to get after everything goes sour. Yeah. And he's trying to entice Russell to walk away with that job. Um, and Russell is not having any of it because he has paid such a personal cost. The things he has had to do, the morals he has had to compromise to supposedly do some good and take out a big big source of drugs. And then it's all shown to be a lie. And uh, it's quite a crisis of, of faith for Russell and what he's going to do, but also just shows that the people in charge don't really give a damn. Yeah. It's one thing to do these these things and to compromise, uh, you know, oneself and one's principles for an actual goal. Okay, I yes, I I made these compromises, but I achieved this. I I let I let some drugs, you know, into the to the community into the street, but in the end, I took down this major cartel. That is, you know, that is a compromise that you know can be can be rationalized and and very reasonably so. Um, But when it's, oh, I had to do these things and then I didn't even achieve the goal that I was set out to do, well, then really what, you know, then that's the hard thing to live with, I think. You know, that's the the difficulty is when you make compromises and you don't even achieve your goal. Yeah, and and the character who, besides Russell's own uh, voiceover in the film. It is is a great... Classic film noir voiceover. Classic. And, uh, but you do get some scenes with Taft. 
mm-hmm. who uh, again is the police of uh, uh, like a you know LAPD I yeah think, local policeman. Local. He's not DEA, and he's uh, again played by Clarence Williams III, and he is encountering Russell as John the drug dealer, mm-hmm. and so he does not know uh, that he is working undercover, and some of the interactions that they have, uh, and with with a big pivotal one being when John has been arrested and is at the police station and Taft is interrogating him. And it's really uh, a, a great scene. It is. And it's, in, uh, you know, Taft is invoking religion. Uh, here, the, uh, the the person invoking Christianity and religion treated very, very differently than in Menace to Society. Mm-hmm. Also treated very differently than in Boys in the Hood. Uh, in that you can see that Russell, who's playing John the drug dealer, is conflicted in this scene mm-hmm. but outwardly he needs to dismiss taft and dismiss the religion and make fun of him uh and taft is talking about uh the reason that he does what he does and he's doing it for the well-being of african-american babies and he tells john that selling drugs is like putting a gun to their head mm-hmm. and so all of this has been in the back of john's mind and it's in the vo but always like three steps removed from what he is doing, what does it actually mean? And Taft here is throwing it in his face, and it's uh, very uncomfortable for John, and and starts turning John back into Russell eventually. Yeah, um, there's a there's there's an interesting theme throughout this movie of people not being what they seem to be on the surface, like that. Almost everybody, with the exception perhaps of of Clarence Williams the Third's. Uh, police detective who is is uh, what he he appears to be but everybody else you know obviously you know uh you know fishburne is playing a character who is undercover and posing as a drug dealer or rob is he a drug dealer posing as a cop but additionally uh the character played by jeff goldblum david is i thought was really interesting because when we meet david for the first time he's with his family in, a, in what looks to be a suburban house somewhere in the San Fernando Valley or something like that. And he, he's, he seems to be a very disciplined family man. A criminal, I'll, I'll add, but, you know, someone who has this sort of like, he, he's got his shit together and, you know, yeah, I'm a criminal, but I'm also, you know, sort of, I, I you know, I go home and I, I do the help the kids with their homework sort of thing. But what's interesting is, as the movie goes on, we see more and more that he has the same weaknesses as many of the other criminals of this movie. He's a drug user himself. Uh, he's got some some weird sex stuff going on, and but he's able to mask it a bit better at the outset. Um, there's a there's a line that Fishburne says to one of the people in his employ, and it feels like it's a theme to this movie: is you either use or you sell. You can't do both. But of course, so many of the people in this movie break that rule and as a consequence are unstable. David is an interesting character. You know, he starts, he's a lawyer for the for the cartels, for the yeah. drug dealing that's going on. But both, and Russell is a plainclothes policeman. Uh, both of the, obviously David is starts as a criminal, but he is a kind of the white collar version of it. And yes. frankly, is the kind of guy like a cartel lawyer, you know, in America, probably not getting uh, iced, right? Right. In general. But David and Russell, as they both enter 
this movie go through a change where they are both getting more and more drawn into the drug world. Yes. And in fact, it's bringing them together as friends in a way. Yeah. Russell playing John. John and David kind of become friends of a sort. Now, they're not... They're not best buddies. They clearly are having their disagreements and John is trying to, at time, uh, David's trying to limit John's uh, profit participation, should we say. Uh, John's pushing back. But you can tell that David sees John as his ticket to something more. Yeah. And thus, uh, and thus is beginning to like him because also David is a guy who mixes the personal with the business and this is something that gets him in trouble later on in the movie. Yes, as the, as the movie goes on, they they eventually find themselves at odds with Felix Barbosa, their boss, uh, and then following a confrontation, they're able to, they, they, they eliminate Barbosa and move on up the ladder to, as it, Gallegos. Um, which, again, the, the the higher they go, the the deeper everything gets. Um, you know, and, and eventually it leads to uh, Russell quitting his job as a cop because because you know the Charles Martin Smith wants to bring him in be like hey cut this whole thing loose we'll go to Washington we'll have a cookie off office job and he's like no way and he and, and I was like well that's sort of it, it's you know he has that little line a whole time I'm a cop pretending to be a drug dealer but I'm really a drug dealer pretending to be a cop and it's it it's terrific like, th- th- again this movie this is a fantastic movie that people should seek out because it is it's just such a great noir thriller. It's got great performances, um, you know, and and it it it's just it's just a terrific film. Uh, I really I'd not seen this before, but I really like this movie. Yeah, and um, you know, the, this is another theme like Wizard of Oz, where I feel that a thesis statement is given to you toward the end of the yes. film, uh, and it, it, oddly enough, it is not from Russell. It is from David. Uh, David, who, by the way, has been, you know, uh, very like low key racist this whole movie as well against black people and and against, I think, the cartel as well a little bit. Um, yes. he, he definitely has that going, which is why it's interesting. Also, at the end of the film, they're in the big uh, they're going to deal with Guzman directly mm-hmm. and the they could get killed or they could sell Guzman on backing their designer drugs. Right. Uh which is uh, something, it'd been a dream of David's, right? To do these designer drugs that are, it's like cocaine, but it's legal because the chemical compound is slightly different and they can make it. They don't need to ship it into the country. Right. Uh, so it, it makes it safer. Guzman uh, is saying, you're trying to cut us out. And what David says to him is, no, Mr. Guzman, I think you know there's no such thing as an American anymore. No Hispanics, no Japanese, no blacks, no whites, no nothing. It's just rich people and poor people. The three of us are all rich, so we're on the same side. Yeah. And, you know, that is, that is, I think, the uh, not-so-subtle Rosetta Stone line yeah. about what this movie is saying about uh, the drug trade and power in the country. And frankly, you know, with what's been going on uh, in the world in our current day, I think this is now even more true than Absolutely. ever. And, 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 and like, uh, you know, uh, it's, 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 you know, like Boys in the Hood, uh, it feels like a movie that was looking into the future and, you know, seeing the way where things were going to go. Um, I, before we move on to our next, I do want to mention that the, the, the music of this movie, that has got a great soundtrack 
And the title song was actually the debut single of Dr. Dre, you know, post uh, NWA. And, uh, and it also featured, that, that track also featured Snoop Doggy Dog in his first studio track. So that's a, a, of particular note uh, for the, uh, the terrific title track of this film, which is a, it's just a great film. And, uh, and people should check it out. From deep cover, we move to another film that has a kind of pulp or noir-esque flavor. Uh, Walter Hill's tale of a modern-day treasure hunt gone wrong, Trespass. I think the old guy was confessing. You remember what he said? Who we stole from Christ? I hear it. It's gold, isn't it? Solid gold. I never told to take it. This, my friend, is a treasure map to this desolate place. We're gonna find that gold, Vince, I can smell it. Some come to take what is not theirs. Others to settle a score. Set it up for Saturday. I want to do it someplace way out where nobody is off the track. What the hell are you doing here? Nothing, I'm just here. Back off! In this world, when desperate men meet. We don't want no trouble. the first thing to die. You need to stop thinking with your trigger finger and use your brain. You're gonna get my brother killed. I'm thinking seriously, man. Somebody else needs to take over. And it's every man for himself. It's the police! No, we don't need them. You're crazy. Now, if that loot is here, buddy, I want it. Now, you want to know why they didn't signal the police? Because they found something. Bill Paxton. Damn it, Don. We're getting in awful deep. Ice-T. We're not playing anymore out here. We're past the point of no return. William Sadler. Truth is, Vince, I don't see any way we're gonna get out of here quiet. And Ice Cube. It's all about survival. It's all about getting yours. When you cross the line, sometimes there's no way back. What the hell you white boys doing up here anyway? Go. Go back, go. Trespass. Trespass has an interesting history. It was written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, the team that brought you back to the future, uh, back in the 1970s under the title The Looters. Uh, it was directed by legendary director Walter Hill. It stars Bill Paxton, William Sadler, Ice-T, and Ice Cube. And it tells the story of two Arkansas firemen who in the line of duty come across what appears to be a map leading to a cache of gold stolen from a Catholic church 50 years earlier and hidden inside a factory in East St. Louis. They go there in pursuit of the gold, and while searching the now seemingly abandoned building, they stumble across a gang execution leading to a prolonged standoff between the two parties. Uh, this is another movie I had never seen and wasn't sure how, you know, I just, I, I didn't know a whole lot about it until I started looking into it. And I gotta say, I really liked this movie. Um, it, it feels like the kind of story that could be told in a pulp novel or a B-movie from the 30s or 40s. And I can imagine in my head a version of this story taking place almost in any era that you can put together, like from the Depression. I can imagine a, a Depression-era version of this to the Old West, to the present day, to the Middle Ages. It doesn't matter. Anywhere where you could have a, a sort of a hidden treasure somewhere, I think you, a, and elements that 
are dangerous, you could do a version of this story. Do, do you think you could do a version of this story perhaps in black and white set in the uh, Sierra Madre? I think Mandre. you could do a Maybe version of this Humphrey story. Bogart. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> yes, and that was one of the movies that came to mind watching it. Uh, and it's it's a really good kind of, you know, pulpish, noirish thriller. What makes this film particularly interesting is how they take this, what is a pretty universal story, and they infuse it with levels of social commentary and pointed observations about human behavior. It's, I, I think, you know, it's, it's Sadler and Paxton's characters seem like okay guys at first. But as the situation goes south and their circumstances become more and more desperate, that starts to change. Uh, and I just, I, I, I really, this is a, this is just a really good professional made movie. Like it is, it is, these are, it is, it's written well, it's directed well, it's acted well. It is not necessarily groundbreaking, but it's just well done. Yeah. Uh, and, and Sadler uh, as Don, his character in particular, as you get to know, know about him as the pressure gets turned up, uh, is revealed yep. as just a, a flat out racist. Uh, and Bill Paxton's Vince is the nice guy who, uh, he doesn't believe any of that, but he lets Don yes. do stuff anyway. Oh, well, I'm not actually a racist, but, uh, you know, uh, he lets he lets it happen. Yeah. He doesn't he doesn't stop it. You know, and how much uh, how much of the of the issues that we have today are not just, oh, well, I, I just, he, you just let it happen. You know, it's and it's 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 got a lot going on. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why. The, and there's a great quote from Walter Hill. I did some research. I've been lying this whole time, Chris. Oh, that my comedy bit is up. Um, but uh, Walter Hill, in talking about the movie, said, uh, you know, it's it's very much throwback in the sense uh, with permanently strange relations between uh, the races in our ghettos, our inner cities. He said, but just because the film's intentions are not political doesn't mean yeah. it's not political. Movies take on their own life. This is not a movie about racial confrontation in the sense that the confrontation had nothing to do with race. And my little aside here is because it's about people right. were there at, there for different reasons, the treasure or because they were doing their, their business dealings, right? But he said, inevitably, white and black attitudes spill into the movie because of the attempts to create some kind of social reality. Because, I mean, you know, as, you know, this was a script and while they, they sure. certainly rewrote the scenes, uh, it was written in a, in a much different time. This was not written to be a film to take advantage of, oh my God, New Jack City and Boys in the right. Hood are a big hit. That wasn't the genesis of this story. Walter, I'm sure that's why right. it was able to be made. And, uh, you know, and so it's it, it feels like less of a cash grab, uh, although it is a movie taking <laughs> advantage of the trend that does yep. star two white guys and presents a lot of the movie from their POV. Although I will say... That uh, mm -hmm. Ice Cube is Savon and, uh, and Ice T as King James or KJ, they uh, they are they are equal characters in statue in the uh, yeah, in stature in this movie. Uh, they may it, it may not be 50 50 screen time, but they are important characters and we are in their world. Uh, for instance, King James is worried yeah. about his uh, his brother who everyone is taking great pains to say is yeah. not actually related by blood and he shouldn't care. But you're you're seeing, uh, like, his internal emotional life. It's not all about the money for him. And so 
you do get kind of it, it, it's funny it flips it on its head the two white guys really are in it for the money and then to save their own lives yeah whereas king james is in it for you know he's he's killing someone and doing business at the beginning of this don't get me wrong he's no saint well if they didn't yeah. what happens in the movie is a sta- yeah what happens in the movie is a standoff develops when don and vince the characters played by uh bill paxton william sadler are able to lock themselves in this room uh with king james's younger brother lucky who's played by Devereux white who is the chauffeur argyle from die hard yes argyle um, you know, one of, one of the great uh, supporting characters of 80s action films. Argyle's a hero unto himself. Uh, but they lock themselves in the room so that they, the, the, you know, the gang can't just burst in there and kill everybody because they, they have the, the brother. And uh, also, I, I want to back up a little bit because the first person before the gang comes on the scene, the first person to interrupt their treasure hunt is in the form of a homeless person named Bradley, played by Art Evans who's living in the abandoned building. And it's really interesting how even just the presence of this guy who is a relatively harmless, you know, person, you know, Sadler's character Don assaults the dude and he makes clear he has no, you know, intention of sharing the loot. And he's got this line, which stuck with me. He says, taxes get higher every year just so guys like him can keep eating without doing any work. And I'm like, if I haven't heard that, from, you know, oh, well, you know, it's just, you just want to give him a free look. This dude, this dude's living in an abandoned factory in East St. Louis. He ain't getting a free lunch from nobody. Which, by the way, uh, Vince and Don have broken yeah. into this guy's home. <laughs> and are going to extract the wealth from his home. And I'm not even saying that they shouldn't go get it. I'm yeah. just saying, you know, like, I'm saying it's not like it's theirs. So then, then to cop the whole... Taxes get higher every year. Come on, man. Yeah, and one thing, uh, and I want to call this out here. Uh, a, uh, he's he's an important character. The movie treats yes. him like a human being. He is a character with, uh, again, an internal world. <laughs> he does not. He's not going to just do what these guys say. But he is not what. He's not totally one dimensional. Even though I don't know this guy's the you know his life history, but. He is not just, hey, let me go. Uh, He becomes very active later on. He is kind of trying to make himself come out of the situation better. He's not a complete, you know, dummy or zombie. He's also not presented as a threat to Vince and Don. Um, He is a a full living, breathing human being. Uh, You might say, why would you point that out? Uh, When we get to our next film... Uh, you will yes. understand why I pointed out in this. Uh, I want to point out he's played by uh, Art Evans, who played, and this this is just one of those this quirks of movies. He, he Art Evans previously had played uh, the Dulles Airport engineer in uh, Die Hard Two. So you have in two key roles that also starring William Sadler. Yes, also starring William Sadler. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, he's, he, both, it's funny that William Sadler and Bill Paxton are in that room and the two principal guys with them are two of, of John McClane's key allies in the first two Die Hard movies. Uh, I could not let that pass without pointing it out. Oh, that William Sadler, not a key ally. Just saying that. His, uh, no, William Sadler, uh, is, is, you know, he's doing his naked Tai Chi in the, uh, in the motel room and at the beginning of Die (laughs) Hard 2, uh, a movie that, uh. We will cover uh, in in not too distant future when we do 
get me another Die Hard. Uh, I don't, I, I, you know, I could honestly, I could say now, coming this Christmas, get me another Die Hard. Uh, but you know, well, well, we have time. We have plenty of stuff to get to before then. Um, I, I just thought this was such a tight script. I really, I thought this was was just really uh, a well put together screenplay, and and the way the situation sort of builds and complicates itself, um, you know, as it goes on, and and like there's an interesting bit, like uh, when Don and Vince they make some headway in trying to get out of this building, when Bradley shows them the chimney, it's like oh this might be a way out, but then the next scene. Yeah. is one of the gang finding their car and slashing their tires. So it's it's a great example of they make some headway and then there's an immediate setback, even though they don't know it yet. Yeah, and this movie does play with that, um, giving the audience information that yes. characters do not yet yes. have on both sides. Because it's a long time before the gang knows that there's gold involved. A very long time. And so... And they don't know exactly what our guys are up to. That they're, for instance, uh, at one point, Vince and Don yeah. are using a metal detector to detect the metal cleats of one of the gang members who is in the room above them to make sure they don't try and uh, go out the windows. But uh, so playing with that dramatic tension of giving us information, the audience, that certain characters don't have, so that you're, you know, it's that classic Hitchcock yeah, the, bomb. Under the character the table. with the cleats, by the way, played by Tommy Tiny Lister. Uh, who uh, just is in many, many films through the 80s and 90s, always an imposing presence and fantastic. Yeah, and um, just to get into the actors uh, a little bit, uh, you know, everyone I I find very wonderful in this, uh, you know, uh, William Sadler is kind of terrifying, uh, (laughs) you know. Uh, he, He actually might give the scariest performance of anyone in this film. It's... He gets very, very unhinged and, and does get to the point where he's, uh, you know, essentially almost mm-hmm. attacking Vince uh, because uh, he yeah. wants to have his way. Uh, Don, Don wants to have his way. But, say uh, you know, Savon and King James, Ice Cube and Ice-T. Uh, and I think very smartly, uh, Walter Hill had said that they were given uh, leeway yeah. on set uh, to rework dialogue in a way that felt natural and organic to them. And yeah. I think it shows uh, because it's all just very straightforward and it, it you know, it, it feels good. And the, the tension between yeah. Savon and King James mirroring the tension between Don and Vince is very interesting. Although in this instance, King James is the one who has more power in the relationship and is the one who has more heart and actually yes. has a bit of a code. Uh, although again, Absolutely. he's still a ruthless killer. Like don't, don't get me wrong. It's no one is a saint in this movie. Nobody's a saint. <laughs> he's there to execute a, a criminal. Then, you know, they've taken him to this abandoned building to kill him because there's nobody around. That's why they're there in the first place. Um, yeah. It's, and it's interesting, as you say, the, the, the way alliances sort of shift on both sides of this is super interesting. Like there's one bit where, you know, Vincent Don try to make a deal with Bradley because they think he's, you know, that he's black and the gang won't hurt him. And he's like, that's, that's bullshit, man. They would kill me just as much as they'll kill you. And then, you know, for a, for a time, it's like Don and Bradley end up kind of on the same side for a little bit. And when they do, Don treats Bradley almost as if he were a servant. He's like, oh, go do this. Oh, go get that. Pick that up. And it's like, it's, it's, 
all of the character dynamics in this are are super well drawn and incredibly well acted and written. Uh, this is just one of those. It's a professional movie. Can we get into the big spoiler alert now? Let's do it. Big big spoiler alert. If you like what you've heard and you're saying I haven't seen Trespass, I'm going to watch it. We are going to spoil the end of this movie, which is. Uh, I, I would I yes. think you would want to watch if, if it you without have, the spoiler. If you've listened to it thus far and are like, oh, this, this sounds like it's my cup of tea, just, you know, turn it off or skip ahead five minutes, so then we'll be talking about Judgment Night, and you don't even need spoilers for that. No, you do not. So the end of this movie, pretty much, I mean, the, ho- yeah. the whole place goes up in yes. flames. Don and, and King James have a direct confrontation and end up in a, a shootout with one another. Savon has tried to burn uh, someone yeah. else who knew about the treasure, and they both wind up, di- you know, uh, yeah. dying because they've shot each other. And you are left with yes. Vince is getting out alive, but very, very... Uh, his fireman skills helped him to because he's Bradley. able to repel out of the out of the the window. Yeah, and the fact that he's not, you know, he is uh, a little more of a passive murderer right. uh, as opposed to Don, well, and and he's willing to get out <laughs> you know? without the gold. There, there's the thing is that he's not, you know, he's like, oh, I, you know, his life is is primary, his primary goal. Um, and then you know the other character who's left standing at the end. I'll let you you go ahead. Yeah, is Bradley, uh, the homeless man who uh, they've been with from the beginning. And Bradley has the gold in the bag. He hides it and Vince comes up to him and he's like, it and it's it's such a great moment because after all of the hell, like Bradley would have never been in this right. position if not for Vince and Don. But Vince is being so magnanimous at the end, like, oh, I can't leave you. You have to come, <laughs> you know, you won't get out of here alive. And Bradley's just sits there saying, oh, yeah. you go. I don't want to. I'll be fine. I, you know, I don't want to slow and you Vince down. Vince takes off. And then you just kind of end. Vince goes away. And then you just end. He smiles and he picks up the bag over his shoulder. And that's, uh, it, it's, again, this is a, a lesser known movie. And, and it's, I it's really good. I I just thought this was a really sort of just really well executed movie across the board. Yeah, and it's you know it is adjacent to yeah. what films like New Jack City and Boys in the Hood were doing. It's you know the the explicit socio political message has been stripped out. Yeah. It's made by white people. It's got a couple of white guys starring, and yet it you know at least to 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 me where I'm sitting and you know other people may have different thoughts. This doesn't feel cringeworthy. It just feels like, well, you know, they were using uh, some of that, uh, you know, uh, some of those pieces of that that era, uh, mm-hmm. and they were following a film trend. But they made a film that doesn't work. To me, it doesn't work against the spirit of New Jack City no. necessarily. No, I don't think it does it, at all. It, you know, it's not it's not necessarily doing what what New Jack City or Menace to Society were doing or Boys in the Hood, but it's not. It doesn't feel like a slap right. in the face to those It absolutely movies. does. And, and, and I want to reiterate something I've said in previous episodes, and I'm not sure I've said it in this series so far, is that just because something comes sort of downstream of, of something else, just because a movie comes in the wake of something else, doesn't make it bad. doesn't make it derivative. It's just, oh, well, this opened up a door, and other, other films are going to go through that door. And you can have some really interesting movies come out of that, and that's why we wanted to, to. That's why we kind of settled on the format that we did uh, to explore those movies. Conversely, our third film today also revolves around guys who find themselves in the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time. 1993's Judgment Night. 
Nobody is taking dates. It's a bunch of guys going to a boxing match. That's it. Why are you looking at me like that? Because I know you're friends. <laughs> They're the hormones of high school kids. I'll be home early, okay? Promise. What <laughs> do you say, fight fans? A night out on the town. Yeah. A heavy traffic jam. I'll tell you something, I'm not going to miss this fight. And one wrong turn. We've circled this block about 300 times. Yeah, enough for this scenic route. Ah! What the hell was that? Ah! been shot. They're coming after me. You gotta get me out of here. Back We can't just sit here, kid. Come on. They got guns, John. You broke rule number one. Do not steal from me. Oh, boys, rule number two, no witnesses. Come on! Go, go, go! the hell are we? What are we gonna do? Cops are gonna be here any second. The cops are not coming. What's up? You punks crazy or something, man? Chill out, man. We're just looking for some citizens. Don't move. Don't whisper. Don't even breathe. These guys don't give up. Oh, Frank, is this your wife, huh? I get a wife and a little girl, and I will get back to them tonight. Let's show these punks what we got. You better believe it. You're just another victim. You're just another victim, kid. Hey! You're just another victim. Emilio Estevez, Cuba Gooding Jr., Dennis Leary. No, Frank, after I kill you, I think I'm going to pay a little visit on that wife of yours. Judgment Night. You coming? Written by Lewis Colick and directed by Stephen Hopkins, Judgment Night tells the story of four guys from suburban Chicago who make the wrong turn on their way to a boxing match and find themselves in an inner-city neighborhood where they run afoul of a group of criminals. Oh, wait. No. I, I, I'm just being handed a different, a different summary from, from our Get Me Another Board of Directors. Um... Judgment Night tells the story of four stupid a-holes who make every wrong decision imaginable to the point where they deserve every terrible consequence that befalls them. Sorry, a little correction we had to do there because, uh, you know. Uh, it started, the Judgment Night stars Emilio Estevez, Cuba Gooding Jr., Jeremy Piven, Stephen Dorff, and Dennis Leary as the leader of the gang. And on the surface, it's a very similar story to that of Trespass, except... All of the layers of character development and subtle social commentary that make that film more than just a pulpy crime story are stripped away from Judgment Night until you're left with some garbage. <laughs> I didn't love this movie, Rob. Yeah, I, I, I was picking up that vibe from you, Chris. Um, <laughs> so again, before we before we talk about you know go through the film and the story and the and, and the production and all that, so. Artists will copy other artists when something is successful, particularly in film. That's, you know, and, and, and copying just can mean using elements being inspired by, uh, I'm just, I'm not using it in the negative sense, right? And right. frankly, that happens all the time in, in sure. you know, music, a painting, uh, you know, certainly film, uh, novels. There's certain books that feel like they are, one is in response to another. Uh, and that is a normal thing and that happens and there's nothing wrong with that. All, all art in some ways is, re, is a response to other art and, and nothing happens in a vacuum. It, it, it all builds off of the things that yeah. came. And that's the great conversation of, you know, human artistic endeavor. And then there's Judgment Night. Yeah. 
at the same time, there's a whole other sphere of influence, which is that historically in the United States of America, yeah. uh, if black people create art, uh, oftentimes a white person will come in, just explicitly copy it, and then try to make more money off of it than than the black folks did. You know, honestly, I think I, I saw a uh, there's a there's a a, a, po- a biopic about that very thing out in theaters just at this moment. Yes, yes. Um, and, and then there's whether or not you just you know made a successful movie in a vacuum in and of itself. Like, does the story work? Uh, yeah. You know, are the characters solid? All of that. For me, you know, Trespass might have violated one of those two circles. Right. You could say it was white people capitalizing on a trend that came out of something very meaningful to black folks, uh, you know, giving a voice to things that were not being heard. And you're like, that's in and of itself not that great. But I think in the other two realms, the movie didn't disrespect what had come before it. And the movie in and of itself was also good. Uh, Right. Judgment Night. Again, while we're not here to specifically take things down, I think it fails in all three of the arenas. Yeah, but we can be honest, you know, and... uh, Truthfully, this is the first movie in this series that I have not liked. I, I have liked everything we've had so far. Yeah, and it's just, it, this this feels like a slap in the face yeah. to New Jack City and to Boys in the Hood. And it, it, it feels like a cash grab even down to the soundtrack, which really has absolutely nothing to do with the film. You don't hear the soundtrack in the movie. It's all Alan Silvestri's orchestral score. It's I mean, you get some in the in the, the closing credits, but that's it. And they were clearly positioning this movie to be in the vein of, oh, you liked you liked Boys in the Hood, you liked Menace to Society, come see Judgment Night. Our soundtrack is pairing a white musical group with a black musical group. It's an entire album full of Aerosmith and Run DMC, Walk This Way. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, the soundtrack the, the soundtrack album, music inspired by, it's, it's good. <laughs> but it has nothing to do with this film. Nothing. And this film certainly doesn't have a 50-50 mix at all. No. Uh, it is solidly, you know, uh, not in that realm. I, anyway, I'm, I've been rambling, but it's, I feel very passionately that this is just, it's, it's, it, it's a misfire on many, many levels. Right. And it's, it's the, again, like I said, this is the first movie of all the movies we watched for this, this series, the Boys in the Hood series so far, that I didn't think was really good. So it's, you know, we're, we're batting, you know, it took us till, till this to get to our, a star crash. You know, it was, uh, uh, you know. <laughs> Um, and what's frustrating about this movie is that there are, as- there are aspects of it that are actually well-made technically. Stephen Hopkins, who, who previously directed Nightmare on Elm Street 5, as well as Predator 2, a movie I've always been a fan of that seems to now be getting some appreciation, as well as numerous episodes of the TV series 24, knows how to say- stage a suspenseful scene. There's one where they are hiding in a train car like in a train car in a train yard and the and the gang is looking for them and basically they have to stay quiet. Now, from and, and that scene perfectly, perfectly encapsulates this whole movie because on a technical level, it is a well-executed suspense scene. Are they gonna be found? Are they you know, are they gonna stay quiet? Is some noise gonna give them away? And it works that way. But but 
it lacks any kind of the substance or subtext, and it settles for this cartoonish version of urban blight that is populated by dangerous and mentally ill homeless people who are barely even human. And they are, they are occupying this train car with these guys who are, you know, and, uh, you know, they have to, oh, well, what are you going to give me to stay quiet? I'll give them a watch, all this sort of thing. You know, it's like they get, it's a whole thing. They get off the freeway and all of a sudden they've stepped into escape from New York. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's just the most cartoonish suburban reactionary vision of, of what, you know, inner city neighborhoods are like, you know, and, and the train car yeah. scene sums it up. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the homeless people are a dehumanized threat. I mean, it's, it's yeah. practically return of the living dead. Yeah. Um, they are shown, and, and look, obviously, there are mentally ill homeless people. Like, I, I get this. But this movie does not treat that with any sort of heart whatsoever. It no. is just, oh my god, scary guys are out to kill me. They, in order to get five bucks, they're threatening to call it, call out to the bad guys so that I would get shot and murdered. Yeah. Um, these are not people... These are just walking threat props with teeth in this is the movie, yes. which is very different from Bradley and Trespass. Absolutely. It's very different from the the addicts and, and, and street hustlers we saw in New Jack City, yeah. for instance, uh, which, you know, wasn't necessarily presenting them as saints. Uh, no. You know, people did bad stuff, but they were people. And right. it's just the dehumanization is off the off the charts. Yeah, that, it's yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but like Trespass, it feels like a story that could have been set at various times and places. And apparently, the the story went through numerous drafts and writers, including John Carpenter and William Wisher, who both worked on it at various points. Uh, although they are, are, I don't think at all involved in the final version. And they considered a variety of settings, including the deserts outside of Los Angeles, where the group was going to be menaced by a motorcycle gang. Yeah. I mean, and you know, look, I'm sure at some point someone described this as, an, as deliverance in the city um, or something <laughs> like that, you know, but it is not. And I, I will say that I think that story wise, even accepting any look, if if you're one of the if you're someone who's going, eh, I don't care about sociopolitical implications, yada yada yada, right? Yeah. You're you're talking to my ear, is the movie any good? And I'm I'm here to also say no. No. The chasing of our heroes uh is so repetitive. Oh, it's also dumb. There feel like this is another movie where characters have to keep being incredibly stupid. Uh uh, for instance, Ray, Ray and his death. There's no world. I don't care how scared you are about crawling over a ladder between two buildings. There's no way that you throw the ladder over the roof to the ground and then go, I'm going to negotiate my way out of this with the guys who've been trying to kill us for the past half hour of this film. Let me back up. Let me back up from that point <laughs> fairly late in the movie. Uh, I was watching this movie, and ten minutes into it, I texted to you, Rob, I hate yes. everyone in this movie. And you know what? It never got better from there. Uh, toxic masculinity wasn't really a term in the 90s, but it definitely was a thing. And this movie is all about toxic masculine... Per you know, oh, the one guy says, there's only one of the group, uh, the Emilio Estevez, Frank, uh, is is married. And I, I think, you know, he one of them says, oh, married life is making you soft, Frank. I mean, oh, Jesus. 
Uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. basically plays a walking libido. Rob, I've never liked a group of protagonists less. Yeah, they do not save the cat. They uh, tell no. the cat it's a pussy for not taking shots <laughs> and leaving their wife. Um, I was going to say, Frank is supposed to be the heart and soul of this movie. Right. Who care- And we're supposed to care because of the possible threat to his family, which, by the way, uh, so uh, doesn't work for two reasons. Number one, at the beginning of this movie, the one time we see Frank with his wife, he is an asshole to her. He's a, he's a total dick. They have a new baby three months and he's like, why you? he's essentially saying to his wife, oh, don't don't be such a hang up. I got to go out to the, the boxing match with my boys. I haven't left the house in three months. And she's sitting there with the baby going, I haven't either. And then does Franco, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. You can get a night out another time. No, he's just like, ugh. And I'm like, this is a terrible marriage. Is it writes Frank's wife as a kind of shrew? Yeah. And then additionally, they lose their wallets in that in that rail yard scene. And yeah. now uh, the bad guy, Fallon, uh, has, has Frank's wallet. It's got the pictures of his family. It's got his ID, his driver's his license, with his home address. And Fallon keeps talking about, I'm going to come to your home and blah, blah, blah. And you keep waiting for, well, clearly our, our heroes are going to, quote unquote, escape at some point. And then Frank's going to go home and have the confrontation with Fallon. That's, they've been setting it up this whole movie. That's what's going to happen, right? No. No! <laughs> Let me just say this. Early in the movie, they take this stupid RV to drive to the to the the, the boxing match, which they're they're going to be late for anyway. Which is why they make this wrong turn. Why they didn't just leave enough time to get there, I I don't know. But like, when Cuba starts using the RV's PA system to yell at homeless guys, and Piven pulls out a gun that he's got, I was starting to hope that none of them were going to get home alive. Which is uh. And not the case. Some some get home alive. Uh, although totally unchanged from this experience. <laughs> Completely unchanged. They're no different. It's they're, they're they're still one of them does die. Jeremy Piven does die. There's spoiler alert, who gives a shit? Um, you know, Jeremy Piven dies, and uh, I guess that's the one thing the movie's got going for it. No, the one thing it has going for it, Chris. Is its plethora of split diopter shots. Yes, including, oh, there's some good ones. <laughs> at the 68 minute mark, uh, if you are a uh, uh, a masochist, is it the close up on Leary's face? Well, yeah, and it's it's again. I had said I'd never seen split diopter coverage before when we were talking about what Star Trek the Motion Picture. Yes. I now can can say that in Judgment Night, it's not quite coverage, but. You have like one of the is uh, Leary's mouth is in the foreground on the yeah, left and the yeah. guys in the back. But then you cut to the other two uh, guys, the other two um, villains who are part of Leary's gang. And they're in, an, in a split diopter shot themselves. So it's like two two yeah. shots as they're talking to each other, I think, in the sewer or something. Uh, yeah. And they, they cut like back to back to back to back. I thought, oh, after like three cuts, the split diopter coverage is going to end. And I was like, no, it is not. I, I should. And then <laughs> you get, uh, you know, 73 minutes in, you get a Stephen Dorff one hiding behind a post. 97 minutes in, you get another one of Emilio in the foreground left and all of the. Uh... <laughs> oh, this is my note, Chris. I did not look at this. I said 97 minutes split diopter. 
uh, after uh, with Emilio in the foreground left and all of the stupid parts on the back right. <laughs> I don't know what was in that shot because I was that mad 97 minutes into this movie. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's it's funny. I had all three of the movies this week. I had not seen before before this. I was familiar with with Deep Cover. I just had never seen it. Uh, I'd, I'd heard of the other two, um, and it, it's funny because they kind of cover a gamut. And 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 the the way we kind of put them together, it, it actually is really interesting because you have you have a, a great movie that sort of it feels like it's very much. Um, in keeping with with the spirit of these types of films, although it's it's uh, they're all three are are sort of pulp tales. They're all three kind of pulpy tales. But but one is is sort of the you know and that's deep cover is sort of the best of the three, and it's it's very much in keeping with the spirit of some of the movies we talked about earlier uh, on the show in the in the previous episode. You have Trespass, which is kind of in the middle, and it's a very well made movie, and it and it does it is respectful of some of these things, even though it is kind of you know taking advantage of the, of the of the trend that's emerging and then judgment night on the opposite end of the spectrum is uh this is the the, the sort of the shitty capitalization on a, a, a trend you know this is this is what you this is what you don't do yeah and it's uh you know and look making a movie is hard making a movie when you're dealing with fraught racial tensions is also very hard uh but at the same time this just feels like a blatant cash grab and it is it does not play well uh it didn't play well back then either uh you know and look i don't know no disrespect to anyone involved with this movie uh, a lot of the performances are very good uh and again like you said a lot of the technical things are very good but it yeah. just this i don't know it's just it's a really really tough one given how important the films that started this trend were in express like this is not copying batman but just you know this this is a different level and there's a a, and look whether or not you should even make a movie like judgment night trying to capitalize is is a whole other question but if you do you need to take a whole lot more care than this yeah there it is um so i think i think that that brings us uh i think that brings us to a close for this week uh next week join us we'll be tackling three more films uh, again continuing this trend 1994's sugar hill and fresh and 1995's dead presidents from menace to society directors the i'm Hughes looking Brothers. forward to watching um, dead presidents again chris oh so am i uh listen everybody thank you so much for listening we are your hosts chris iannacone and rob lamorgis if you've enjoyed our show please consider subscribing and following us on twitter and instagram at get me another pod also tell your friends tell your enemies tell people you have neutral feelings about And join us next time when we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another.